0: Well, good morning, everyone. We are thrilled to have you here. Let me make sure I start my watch so I know how long I'm going. It has nothing to do with how long I'm going to go, but I just know how long I'm going. So. <laughs> now, uh, we're starting a brand new sermon series this weekend called Make a Good Decision. And I don't know about you, I think I'm with the crowd that loves the winter because you decided to come out this morning, right? Come on, you like wintertime? I mean, those of you that don't are at home, safe and warm. That's good. We're glad you're there. Uh, but I, lo- I grew up in Cleveland, so I love snow. If it's going to be winter, it might as well be snow and cold. Right? It's better than gray and rainy, all right, and slushy. And I love it. Does anybody else? I love it when snow crunches. Huh? I'm, I'm taking a dog for a walk just so I can walk on crunchy snow. All right? It's fun stuff. So uh, today, as we jump into this sermon series, we're going to go for about six weeks on this uh, topic Uh, We'll have sort of a diversion that's a little related. In two weeks, Pastor Kevin Ward will be here with us uh, from Eswatini, Africa, so don't miss that. Uh, But uh, if you have the app, you can follow along with us. And the first point to dive right in basically says that decisions are part of life. And speaking of diving right in, on Wednesdays, we do a deeper dive of the weekend message. So this Wednesday at 7, come to the West Auditorium and we'll dig deeper into what you're about to hear. But life is all about decisions. Uh, Most decisions have small consequences, and you've made a bunch of them already just to this point in the day. You decided what time you're going to get up, what service you're going to go to, if you're going to stay home. You decided what you're going to wear, if you're going to have breakfast, if you're going to have coffee or not, where you're going to go for lunch. I mean, all these decisions come to us, and we make decisions all day long. Happily, most decisions go well. Uh, or at least they go good enough, or if they don't go good enough, then we can easily remedy the decision. We make and enjoy and alter and live with and adjust decisions all the time. They come and go, and we barely notice that we're making them. It's just part of life. It's almost like walking for us. Uh, that's true for most people. There are a handful of you here that agonize over decisions. And what takes somebody that long can take you a long time because it's got to be just right, just perfect. What if I make the wrong decision? Whatever. And I would urge you to do your own deeper dive in. Okay, God, why do I feel like I've got to make the perfect choice? And is there a way that I can loosen my grip on that and give myself a little bit more grace in the day-to-day decisions of life? There's one downside to making a lot of decisions on a regular basis, taking it for granted, Uh, And that is that when we do get to big decisions or ones with larger consequences, it does rightly raise our anxiety level. That's not all bad because the right amount of anxiety can actually sharpen us in our decision-making and how we consider things. I, looking back and prepping for this message, this series, I've made countless decisions, uh, thousands of decisions that are basically inconsequential now at this point in life. I've made many decisions that are lingering in their impact and some really big decisions. Those decisions that are really important, thankfully, most turned out okay. Some turned out really good. Uh, Some were costly and regrettable, That if I could have a do-over, I wouldn't do it over. Uh, Some great decisions, I don't know if you can relate to this, uh, some, at least what I thought were really great decisions, didn't have really great outcomes. You ever had that happen? This is going to be great. And then it's not great. And if we're not careful, what we'll do with those decisions is we will tell ourselves that the reason why it wasn't great is because it was a bad decision. That's not necessarily so. Sometimes it's the right decision. It's a great decision. But the outcome wasn't what you had hoped for or anticipated. And there is a reason that you can tweak that or modify that uh, in the future. And uh, making a good decision isn't enough. And there's two parts to this, and so the the sermon series is make a good decision, then make the decision good. I learned that the hard way, but it's very true. Now, I have also learned that through the years that people who are sitting there tend to look at a person who was up here and say, well, they're on stage. They must have mastered this content. They must be really good at that. They never make mistakes. Trust me, I am still learning how to make good decisions and then make those decisions good. I am fully capable of making bad decisions. In fact, how many of you ever made a really good decision? Let me see your hand. All right, online, give us an emoji. How many of you ever made a really bad decision? Let me see your hand. All right, we can can both do that, right? I'm in the same camp. In fact, yesterday, I made a dumb decision, all right? Um, I'm coming to work, and uh, I'm thinking back to, uh, again, Saturday afternoon, I'm thinking back to a staff meeting we had recently, and they gave away some fun staff awards, and they gave me the award for the staff person with the most donuts, Not donuts that you eat. I grew up in Cleveland, 100 inches of snow a year. As a young person, my cars were all rear wheel drive back in the day. And so we would like to spin donuts in parking lots. And so, uh, in fact, one of the young guys who used to work on staff told me between services hey, I just sent you a video of the time I was in the back of your truck and we were spinning donuts. There is footage on YouTube of my 2005 rear wheel drive Chevy Colorado spinning in our west parking lot, okay? Uh, and we're laughing uh, wildly. So I'm thinking, you know, I haven't, I haven't earned that title, most donuts in a while. I bet I could spin some donuts today. The parking lot should be great. So, you know, we do run through. I tell the guys, hey, you want to go spin some donuts before we get started? Yeah, let's do it. Well, so long story short, Dirk is the only guy that could go out because the other guys are busy. And so we go out and the west parking lot, as you see, is dry. Ah, but the south parking lot has not been touched by a plow. So, Dirk, let's do it. So we take the chain off and we go in the south parking lot and we're already giddy with excitement. We're like, It's going to be so cool, right? And so I pull in the, the south parking lot and I give it the gas and I spin the wheel and I start to spin around and all of a sudden I just stop. Ooh, ooh, I am stuck, all right? <laughs> I mean, I am stuck-stuck, all right? And so Dirk gets out of the truck, and he gets in the back, and he's, he's bouncing on my tailgate <laughs> like this. He's like, going back and forth. I'm, you know, with, I'm, ridiculous, right? And so finally, after several minutes, we have to get back to work. This is the picture that Dirk takes of me in the south <laughs> parking lot. And we cannot get out. Uh, And we walked away and looked back and realized, okay, this is embarrassing. (laughs) I'm thinking in a few hours, the the crowd's going to be here for Saturday night, and they're going to go, why is this truck in that parking lot? Uh, So thankfully, Pastor Shane and Derek and I don't know who else, uh, while I was getting ready for service last night, they got a four-wheel drive and pulled me out, and (laughs) I will try again. So anyway. (laughs) So we all make bad decisions. And I'm laughing to Dirk. and I'm saying, we're walking back. I'm saying, you know, Dirk, I bet if like if we were both kids at the same time, our mothers would tell us not to hang out with each other because we get each other in trouble all the time. (laughs) He goes, yeah, it'd be us. Uh, And I said, of all weekends to make a dumb decision, you know, on this weekend. So, um, but uh, when it comes to decisions, all of us make a lot of similar decisions. There are also unique ones that no one else has made in here but you. But there's one decision that every person hearing this message, whether you're in the room or online, is called to make. It stands out through the centuries of time from biblical history onward. And that each of us are called to decide, who are you going to serve? I think back when I was young and Bob Dylan had a Christian album out and he they basically said, you've got to serve somebody. You might serve the devil, you might serve the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And Joshua said it this way to the people of Israel. And he challenged the people when he was passing from the scene of leadership And he said in Joshua 24, verse 15, If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today. Decide today who you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We've decided. Who are you serving? And if you say, well, I haven't made that decision, then yes, you have by default. There is no undecided in that. You're either serving God and Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior or not. And let me tell you, that's not an inconsequential decision. Lots of decisions have little consequence. That one is eternal. If you decide to follow Christ, then you will follow Him all the way to heaven in eternity. But if you decide not to follow Him, then you will spend eternity in a Christless hell. If you haven't made the decision to follow Christ, make that decision today. At the close of the service, there'll be a prayer time. You can just go ahead and prayerfully ask him to be your Lord and Savior. With that said, let's jump in, though, and identify uh, when it comes to decisions, some decisions truly define us. Good decisions can define us. Bad decisions could define us. We already identified that we have all made good decisions and bad ones. And it's amazing how a person can make a totally great decision, turn right around and make a very poor one. A biblical hero of ours did that, models that for us. His name is David. The Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. And one of the points of David's biography is that uh, he was a young shepherd boy, probably early teens, wasn't old enough to go to battle yet as a soldier, and his nation Israel was at war against the Philistine army. His brothers were off to war, and his dad said, hey, I want to send you with some food and supplies to the battlefield, check on your brothers, tell me how they're doing, tell me how the war is going. So David shows up, and he sees this curious arrangement. It's not uncommon uh, for ancient armies in those days to line up on one side of a, of a valley in another and another in battle array, and then they would start their fight or call out the terms of engagement. The Philistines set the terms of engagement, which always puts you at a disadvantage for the other army. They said, let's just send out our champions, and the champions will fight, win or take off. Yeah, great idea. And then until they saw who the champion was, the champion was a genetic mutant named Goliath. Literally, he was nine and a half feet tall. He comes out breathing death threats and none of the Israeli army had the courage to go out there. In fact, the Bible says that they would run out there and all of their army, all their, all their battle array, and they'd run out charging the war, shouting the war cry until they stopped in line. And then they were shivering in fear, shaking in fear. Well, David, young David, shows up, and he sees this, and this travesty, and, he's, and here's what he says in 1 Samuel 17, as a shepherd, just as a young kid. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach, the shame from Israel? For who is this Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The rest of the story is biblical history and modern-day folklore because when you ever hear about a David and Goliath or a Goliath kind of moment, a giant slayer, that's David. David said, I'll take him on. And he goes out with five stones and a slingshot. First shot, hits Goliath right between the eyes and the temple and drops him dead. And talk about a decision, a decision of phenomenal courage that then shaped his reputation. They had a parade in David's honor, and people are cheering, King Saul has slain his thousands, David his 10,000. And he is a hero because of that decision. Maybe you've made heroic decisions. Maybe you've made decisions that turned out really good, and people really talked about it or celebrated it. But that same David, years later, after Saul passes from the throne, and David becomes king. He's ruling Israel in the golden age of Israel. And he made another decision that wasn't good. Read along with me 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David parentheses, decided instead to send Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. And David stayed at Jerusalem. Let me stop there for a second. Kings went out to battle for the primary reason of conquering. And as they did and as they won, it boosted their rep. They had a greater reputation, greater power, greater might. Greater esteem. David makes a decision instead to send Joab, the king of his army, and the armies out to, to, to fight, even though it is the season when kings, what kings do, they go to battle. David decided, I'm not going. I'm staying home. Look at verse 2. When evening came, David arose from his bed, couldn't sleep, walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. In appearance. The Bible goes on to say that David says, I want some of that. And so he summons Bathsheba to the palace. She does not deny the king. They have an adulterous affair. She becomes pregnant. Do you ever notice how one bad decision can lead to another and another and another? And then he tries to cover up the affair and her pregnancy and he has her husband sent to battle so he'll surely be killed. And he was. I mean, it's atrocious, but bad decisions are like that. And so now this man who used to be known as a man after God's own heart and a giant slayer, through a bad decision becomes an adulterer and accomplice a manslaughter at the very least. And you say, how could the same guy do this? And I remind us that decisions can truly define us. Hopefully you're defined by your good decisions and your bad ones pale in comparison. But many of us here feel, whether other people define us or not, we feel defined by the bad choices we've made, the shameful things we've done. Is there any recovering from that? Is there any way around that? Yes, there is. And we'll unpack some of that in future weeks. But I want to now talk about there's a process for making good decisions. Basically, and there are Several steps you could have, but you have to identify the why, define the what, and anticipate how much. First of all, identify the why. Why are you making this decision? Why are you saying yes to the course of action that's the what? Is there a need behind this? Is there a compelling reason or vision for doing this? Let's go back to Old Testament history. And years after David has passed from the scene as king, his son Solomon has been king. Then the nation divides in the north and south through civil war. And both those kingdoms fall to foreign armies and empires. And the Israelites are living in exile. And there's a Jew named Nehemiah who is a slave. And he's in a favored slave position. He's cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. As cupbearer, it's a great cushy job, but you never really want your job to be fulfilled because you taste everything the king is fed to eat and you drink everything the king is going to drink, and then they watch you to see if you die, if there's a poison assassination plot in play. If you survive after you eat the first round of the king's meal, then the king will eat it. So you have a great environment. It's just it's costly if, if it doesn't go well. And so Nehemiah learns that Jerusalem has been devastated. The the walls are torn down. The gates are burned. And he's grieved within his heart. And uh, we'll get to the point where the king says, what do you need to fix this? And he gives them the supplies. But Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem and he scopes it out and he talks to the leaders of Israel. Here's what he says to them about the why of the journey. Nehemiah 2.17, Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we're in that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so it will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Identifying the why we would call his, his vision casting. To the leaders, here's the why. Here's the need we want to solve. And this is the why that we're making this decision, why we're going forward. And whether you're casting vision for a team or a congregation or whatever, or if it's just the why for you when you're making a good decision, you have to understand, why am I making this? What's the need to be met? And then define the what. Define the what that is identifying the necessary action. What's the plan? What's going to get you from here to there in that decision to fulfill that? And Nehemiah went through the what? One day he is in the king's presence and the king says, you seem sad, Nehemiah, and we don't understand that culture. So like, okay, he wasn't in a good mood. And it says, Nehemiah says, I was afraid. Because in those days, kings were egomaniacs. They saw themselves as deity. And if you aren't happy in my presence, I am personally offended because just being in my presence should make you in a good mood. So Nehemiah's like, whoa. He says, well, king, here's what's happening. And here's what's happening in Jerusalem. So that's why, if I look sad, that's why. It's not, nothing to do with you. And so in Nehemiah 2, verse 4, the king said to me, what would you request? Here, identify the what. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Prayer is always a key ingredient to big decisions. I said to the king, if it please the king, if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. Nehemiah lays out the what, the plan, what am I going to do, what am I going to need? In the following verses, the king grants him uh, basically purchase orders to get timber, to get stone that they'll need, to get rites of passage through the territories to go to Jerusalem. So he has the what all laid out. And the king grants him that. So he has the why. We need to rebuild the walls, rebuild Jerusalem. He has the what. Here's what the plan is. And then before you embark on any major decision, you have to understand or anticipate how much. What's the cost? And let me jump to the New Testament for this in a word that Jesus said, just some common wisdom in Luke 14, verse 28. He said, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? That makes sense. When you're making a major decision, what's the cost? And when you think of cost, don't simply think in terms of the financial cost. What's it going to cost you in time and in your energy and in your alternatives? Because when you choose to do this, it costs you doing that. You chose to be here or to be online for our 1045 service. and It's going to go until about two or so. No. All right. I didn't preach last week. I got a lot in here, so no. Uh, and so, you, so for that hour and twenty minutes or whatever, it is costing you. You could have been at Cracker Barrel waiting in line. I don't know. All right, or whatever it is. Okay. And so there are al- alternative costs. All right, opportunity costs. And when I read this verse about a tower, kind of the cost. Uh, I told the team yesterday. It, I always think back to uh, when I met Joyce in Akron. I was on staff there, and there was a church there with a well-known TV ministry back in the day. And uh, they had a vision to have a restaurant on their property, and they were going to build uh, like a miniature space needle with a big concrete tower with a moving restaurant on top. I'm not sure what they had to do with the church, but they were going to do it. And uh, years later, when I was on staff at a church in Akron where I met Joyce, all that there was was the concrete tower unfinished. And wouldn't you know, that verse would always come to my mind. Who does build the tower, doesn't count the cost, and can't finish? Isn't that kind of foolish? I'm like, yeah, shoot, kind of fence. Oddly enough, somebody who was in earlier service uh, actually went online and found a picture that that tower is still standing there, <laughs> uncomplete, all these years later. So make sure when you are making a especially major decision, identify the why. Know why you're making the decision. Define the what. What are the key steps? Anticipate how much. And then here is a a word of encouragement or a word of warning or wisdom. Uh, The fourth point identifies that nothing happens exactly as you thought it would. Can I get an amen? amen? So make the decision good. Look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah is like, this is going to be so great. We're going to rebuild the walls and the city and God laid on my heart. And then he talked to the king and the elders are in favor of it and they have a mind to work. It's going to be great. He didn't imagine. And all the people who live in the area that hate the Jews are going to rise up and try to destroy us. But that's what happened. And all of the enemies all of a sudden start threatening Nehemiah And the Bible says that that while the people had built the wall to half its height, I mean, it's really moving, the project, as the people started psychological warfare on them and got in their head, that it says that they demoralized the builders. And Nehemiah knew if you lose the battle here, you're going to lose the battle here. And so Nehemiah prays for wisdom. And uh, in verse 17 of chapter 4, you can read it, What do they have to do? They they have to improvise. And so all the workers on the wall, they had one hand free to carry the building materials and all the supplies to do the work. And the other hand, they had a weapon. And so they're they're, they're doing this to, to sort of make things work, to make the decision good. And sure enough, by the end of that chapter, they built the wall in record time in less than two months. But Nehemiah would say, nothing happens exactly as you thought it would. You have to make this decision and then you make the decision good. And here's where I get to draw today. So it's a really good day. (laughs) I've drawn this before, but it really fits. Uh, I think I've drawn it in the context of marriage and relationships, but it fits big decisions in general. We start out with our expectations. This is going to be great. Our ideal. And then somewhere... We have our experience. Our reality. You make a big decision and you say, yes, I will. And you stand before someone and they say, will you till death do you part? And you say, I do. And you realize that I married Prince (laughs) Charming-ish. Also fits Princess Charming-ish. I got the perfect job, and a year later, well, it was not quite so perfect. And the size of this gap really is our disappointment and frustration gap. Now, it doesn't mean that saying yes till death do us part or saying I'll take the job or let's move to that community, it doesn't mean the decision was bad. But let me remind you that nothing happens exactly as you thought it would. And rarely have I found in life that major decisions actually go above our expectations. Occasionally, it's more than I could have dreamed of, yeah. But oftentimes, well, it's not quite there. Well, we don't want to live with this big of a gap, so if you remember from past times I've used this, what do we do? Well, you basically, to increase satisfaction and the likelihood of the decision being a good one, is you narrow the gap. Two ways to narrow the gap, right? One is you make your expectations more realistic. Well, if we're going to go out and rebuild Jerusalem, there are people who are glad Jerusalem has been destroyed, so we probably have to expect some opposition. And then... You improve your experience. Let's equip ourselves and our people with weapons or whatever so they can accomplish that. Now, that all fits well and good in uh, ancient Israel times, but let's go ahead and fast forward and ask the question, or let me illustrate for you how this dynamic, great expectations, a great decision, whoa hit reality, big gap, we had to narrow the gap, how you are Uh, recipients of that process. So let me take you back to some uh, ancient CLC history, for those of you who are new, and many of you have lived this with us and commented to it during the weekend. Let's go back to 1990. Uh, I became the lead pastor um, really unanticipated. Our previous pastor resigned very suddenly from a personal crisis, and I did not plan to be a lead pastor of a church. It wasn't in my my career path, at least that I knew, but long story short, August of 1990, I, even, I talked to my mentors, what do you think? They're asking us, Joyce and I step into this, and they're like, you know what, with all you're taking in, taking over, if you can survive three to five years and stabilize the church, that'll be good, then you can move on. So I'm thinking, okay, three to five years, I'm stepping into this role. And so in 1990, uh, we said yes, and I became the lead pastor of an amazing church. And that began five years of internal leadership hell on earth, if you will, chaos, for my wife and I, for our board, for a handful of people at the internal leadership level. But for the church as a whole, it just kind of kept on going forward. All the doomsday scenarios didn't happen. All oh, your church will drop in half and you have to lay people off and all that kind of stuff. And it just grew about 10% a year. So two years later, rather than a church of just under 1,000, we we're about 1,200 people uh, and we we're feeling out of space. Now, realize that it was 1980 when CLC relocated from Trotwood to this location, and they put out a brochure that you can see up here on the screen. So this identifies they changed their name from Northwest Assembly of God to Christian Life Center. Notice the uh, retro logo up in the corner. Uh, That was uh, current back then. And, you, and so that's our old building. And you notice that tripod with the cross. that was supposed to go like 50 feet up in the air. Well, that never happened, all right? It was a, 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 maybe a good decision that we just couldn't come up with the 60 grand or it was to do that. So when I did become the pastor 10 years later, 1990, I said, you know what? Since we're not going to put the cross up, but we have that thing in the bottom that's like a little six-sided whatever that was, let's fill it with water and put a fountain in it. So that's what we did. One of the guys at the church uh, made the fountain for us and it was great. So two years in, we're out of space. We're 1,200 people. And the floor plan that we had in 1990 was what you see. Oh, I'm sorry. There's one more shot. Here's a picture of the church from the freeway. And so uh, this is as it was, if you're new to CLC. Uh, The yellow brick, uh, the red roof. It's actually almost a carbon copy of a building in Santa Rosa, California that was a church at the time. It's a community center now. Uh, complete with the the clay tile roof and all that, all right? So that's what we had. Uh, Here's the floor plan of that building. And so you have the sanctuary, room 110 and 11 was the fireside room, and then you have 107, 8, and 9 that we still have over here to my left and your right. Uh, 105 and 6 is now the back uh, green room for our worship team. And then the 300 pod, that's the nursery to this day, and the 200 pod is now offices. That was kids' classrooms as well. But that's all we had for church 1,200 people. Sanctuary sat about 650, 700. You could cram more with seats, but that, it was pews and a balcony. And that sanctuary, uh, the original sanctuary, the back wall of this sanctuary behind the curtains is the back wall of that sanctuary. And the original one came to about where that middle aisle is, uh, along with the balcony. So we, ex- we expanded it, but I'll, I'll get to that. So anyways, we wanted to expand the floor plan to this model. And add what we call the ministry center. It's 35,000 square feet, 16 classrooms, a gymnasium, some offices and some restrooms. And so in January of 92, we had a church business meeting and we had already hired an architect for 60 grand and a fundraiser for 60 grand to help us raise the funds. And we had a church business meeting in January and 97% of the church said, yes, let's do it. And everybody's all excited. And I remember getting up after the meeting going, you know, that just feels too easy. People are laughing. Oh, note to self, when it seems too easy, it was too easy, all right? Uh, and so anyways, so we set off. Uh, to to launch this project. Our plan was it was going to cost $2.4 million. We were not going to go into debt because we're still getting out of debt from before. And so we're going to raise the money and pay for it in three years. And so off we go. And uh, that was in January. We were going to finish it all up in June and kick off the building process. And we went on vacation in April or May, I guess, uh, with our three-year-old son. Joyce was pregnant with Lauren. And we went to Marco Island. And here's a picture of the beautiful sunsets that Marco, our friend, lets us borrow his condo every year uh, from, maybe from Cleveland. And so we're, we would walk these beach, this beach and see that sunset or the beautiful sun during the day. And that's the environment of Marco Island. You're supposed to go on vacation. You're launching this building program. Go get recharged and get ready for the challenge at hand. Little did I know that that's not really what was happening. This is what was happening instead. Storm clouds are a-brewing. On that vacation, my lovely wife said to me, you know that this whole thing is not working. I said, gee, thanks, honey. (laughs) That's not what I said, Okay, I'm not that way. Um, and sure enough, we came back, and uh, the week before Father's Day of 92, I got up and said, you know what? We said we weren't going to build this building and go into debt. We needed to raise $2.4 million in pledges, and we only raised one point two. so we're pulling the plug. <sighs> Sucking sound. Um, and I will confess to you that that really did a number on my motivation, kind of a gut punch. And thinking I'm only there three to five years anyway, I had this wonderful attitude, well, fine, the next guy can build. Yeah, nice and mature, right? Uh, so, anyways, time goes on. And uh, if you know Lee Robinson, he came to me about two years in, after that and said, You know, Pastor, we still need it. Does that have to be all another? We still need a building. Can we do something? Don Ty, uh, also, if you know him, thank both those guys. Don Ty came and said, You know what? If we could build a metal building or something because that one was all masonry. We can find a way to engineer this and get it down in cost. I'll take it on as a project to see where we can get it. Those two guys started the ball rolling. Long story short, uh, in 1995, we were ready to go again. So we had made a good decision back in in 92 to build the building. Uh, We basically stayed with the floor plan of of 35,000 square feet. That's what we built so we didn't waste all the architectural fees. Uh, And we tried, and wow, our experience was way off, derailed it, but we came back to it. How do we make that decision good? So we did another fundraising campaign. We were able to get the cost of the building down to about 1.5. And we did another fundraising campaign because we're not going to go into debt. And we did it in the spring. And when we got done with the campaign, I went on vacation to Florida again. So I'm a slow learner, right? Anyways, we're in Florida. And you're supposed to be relaxing and whatever and not with this kind of job. And I'm getting calls every day. Well, here's where we are. Here's where we are. Here's where we are. And it looks like we're not going to do it again. I'm just devastated. I'm like, okay, God, I cannot lead a congregation and teach them through behavior that they don't have to follow the leadership of the church, the board. We're all but in this. And this is what the church needs. So if I can't lead the congregation successfully, I got to step aside. Somebody else has to do this. that's where I'm at, on vacation, in Florida. The day before we come home, my dad calls, and my dad never really called that much, and much less with unsolicited advice. He said, listen, I know you're bummed. I know things aren't looking right, but let me just encourage you to be patient, trust your congregation. I think they'll come around. Okay, thanks, Dad. Yeah. Sure enough, I learned patience, and the congregation came around, and we raised the needed pledges to go forward with this process. We made a good decision, and we're making the decision good. Yay! After all that time. So um, we then got together as a church before we did groundbreaking, and we had like a prayer dedication service. And so here's a video back from uh, vintage. I think it's 95 uh, or 96. And so these are people that are now 25 years older. Uh, and we're staying there, and it was pre-COVID. We're holding hands without fear, okay? And you'll notice the area, this is now south of where is now the nursery. This is where the building with the gym and classes, this is where that is now. It was a nice park-like grassy grove of beautiful trees. I had some environmentalist types not happy with us going to do this either. Um, Speaking of this, When we were approaching this point, Roger Borey has a construction background. He went and staked out where the building was going to be, the footprint. And then Don Osborne, oh, stop for a second. That building there is called the Annex back then. See that sidewalk? That sidewalk is where the hallway is now that goes from this building down to the building with the gym. Uh, Went through the woods like that. Uh, And that's where we had classrooms for like adults. There was a volleyball court, whatnot. So anyways... So Don walks me out on a Wednesday night. and says, hey, Roger staked out the footprint. Do you want to see it? I'm like, yes. Yeah. So we walk out here and I see how big the building's going to be. And he says, yeah, if you think people think the building's going to be big, wait till they see this. They'll really say you're trying to build a monument to myself. Like, yeah, you think of me when you see that building. But anyways. Um, and so I'm like, oh, Don, knock the stakes down. Man of courage, right? I want people to see it. So we have that huge prayer circle and we pray and we dedicate to God. Uh, there's one more shot here of the annex. Square footage was such a premium that we didn't want to tear that building down to build the building where all those tree stumps are. And so we hired a company to move that across the driveway. And then a couple years later, a group of volunteers built the auditorium on that, which is now the Student Life Center. So it's a really cool building for youth. So anyways, um, with all that said, it is now time for bulldozers, all right? We have made a good decision, and we have made that decision good, so now let's build the thing. So I go out one day and the bulldozers are out there. I don't know bulldozing from, you know, I I drove a Bobcat once when we we, uh, built the Connection Center, the building with the cafe. I almost drove it in the creek, so they don't trust me with that anymore. So anyways, I'm talking to the bulldozer guy. So how's it going? I wouldn't build on this this site if you paid me. He goes, "The, the dirt's horrible. I didn't know dirt could be horrible, all right? It's dirt. Turns out after soil samples and thousands of dollars, it wasn't suitable for building a building. So now we got to find dirt slash mud to go there. And I think it might have been Bob Copp or one of our guys had this great idea. You know what? we got 33 acres. Let's find some good dirt here. So the parking lot that you saw my truck on, that used to be a field. Somebody said, let's do soil samples there. Guess what? The soil samples there were great dirt. So we had to get all these bulldozers and trucks to take all the, scrape all the dirt out of where the gym, the building is and take it off campus so we could then dig up all the good dirt where the parking lot is and move it over to where the ministry center is. Did I say something about make a good decision to make the decision good? Just so you get that, all right. And so then though, so that worked, great foundation. But then the problem is we had this huge gaping hole about the size of a football field where the south parking lot is. We couldn't fill it in before winter hit, so winter hit, it filled with water. I'm like, oh, dear Jesus, please keep everybody off of that. Not I, whatever, you know, it could be a disaster. So long story short, that became a fill dirt wanted, and there's all kinds of concrete and asphalt chunks under that parking lot, but that's another story. So anyways... So we finally go ahead and uh, we get the, the the ground and the the excavation all done. And as they say in the building trades, it started to come up out of the ground. Here's the first shot where you realize we are building a building. Yeah, all right. And so there's the metal studs that they're putting up, and the tall part is where the gym is. That wall's 30 feet high. Uh, and they, they put this, almost the entire frame st- together. And I remember driving up one Sunday morning. It was in the winter. And I come to the Y in the driveway. And before I went to the right to my parking spot, I do a double take. Like, what happened to that? And I realized that that entire metal framework, there was a storm came in the night before with a twisting wind shear. The entire frame of the building twisted to the ground. I mean just a pile of twisted metal studs. Right now would be a good time to say, make a good decision, then make the decision good. All right. So the good news is the building company had to re-engineer the building and we ended up with a stronger, better building. And so the, the studs and the sticks go back up. And so now it's time. Let's see another shot here. The next picture is uh, construction is starting. It's starting to look like a building. And so let's go to another shot. All right, you see that's down the far end. And you see the building, the the drive it up on the upper level. And the bricks are coming in. Next shot shows you another area. glad the windows are now in. Right about this phase of a construction project, you have to start making all the interior decisions. And uh, thank God for my wife. Uh, we were on a strict, a tight budget, and so Joyce doesn't do interiors for a living, but she's got a great knack at it. And so she kind of became the interior designer. Uh, she's home recovering from, sur- from surgery. If you're online today, Joyce, thanks, baby. Did a great job. Um, We we made countless decisions about paint and wallpaper that was big back in the day, and carpet and floor covering and all that kind of stuff. It was ridiculous. It was overwhelming us, but they all turned out well, even to the point of, go back to that last slide for a second. Okay, you see the brick there, all right, the bottom half? Well, that had to be painted with like a paint-slash-stain to match the upper portion. And so you can't make a decision on paint from paint swatches. You know that, okay? It has to be bigger than that. So we got these, uh, that foam insulation, all right? Like I got two-foot squares, and I painted them all the different colors that we were going to look at. It's dead of winter, like a day like today. She's sitting in the car in the parking lot. Kids are in their car seats in the back seat. And I'm at the, going, how about that color? How about that color? What? That one? It's crazy. but That's, that's the kind of what we made the decisions, all right? So you make a good decision, then you make the decision good. And then I remember the day that Bob Walker, our former business administrator, who's since gone to heaven, came in my office and said, I have something to tell you. You need to sit down. Note to self, whenever anybody says, you need to sit down before you hear what I'm going to tell you, it is not about to be good. And he said, I got to tell you something. What? There's nobody here. What do you mean there's nobody here? There is nobody here. There is not a tool. There is not a subcontractor in sight. And the construction trailer is empty. Nobody is here, 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 here. Come to find out, that the general contractor went bankrupt the day before. And everybody's scattered like mice when the lights are on. That costs a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of stress. And Bob Cupp, if you're watching online this service, thank you, because he stepped up with a construction background and said, okay, then we've got to rebid these contracts. What's left to them? We've got to get this building done. We made a good decision, and we're going to make the decision good. So we forged ahead uh, with that process. Now, if you're not careful, people would say, well... You know what? You think you made a good decision, but with all that opposition and uphill climb, that just must not have been God's will. Lots of people, when they hit the uphill of a big decision, want to question the decision. But if you clarified the why and you prayed about it and you understood the what and counted the cost as much as you could, more often than not, what you do is you make the decision good. You don't punt and do a reboot. Because now, fast forward, and you can see some of the pictures of that completed building and uh, it's, a, it's an incredible tool. Thousands of children in that time have learned about Jesus in that building. We have had countless holiday events, whether it's Christmas, whether it's Easter or any time in between. Uh, we have the weekly uh, activities of ministry happening uh, all throughout. Uh, we have had concerts in that building. In fact, those of you that, uh, that know have heard the, the, the band Skillet and Plum. When they were starting out, they had concerts in our gym uh, way back in the early days. Uh, one of the dads took on uh, a challenge and formed Christian Youth Sports. We had hundreds of kids playing basketball in that building uh, in the early years. In fact, you could even get your picture taken. And here is one of a real basketball phenom named Zach Nelson. Uh, and uh, that was back in the Chicago Bulls days, you know, and they played, they'd play the music. I was the announcer, and so I had to come up with, like, words to go with their names. So I'd go, and here is Zippy Zach Nelson! And the whole place of, yeah, yeah, so anyway. Speak of the Zach, there he is. We have packed millions of meals for Africa with Hands Against Hunger in the gym in that building. <laughs> We've had Africa updates Uh, a few years later, back then we had to remodel the old sanctuary. And so we had church in the gym for several months. And then when we built this building, tore down the old yellow sanctuary, yellow brick sanctuary, we had church in that building for about a year and a half, uh, four services on the weekend. I look back on that building and realize that was a good decision. And I also realize that when you make a good decision, the best minds that we had still couldn't have expected everything that wasn't to come our way. But we learned from Scripture we're to walk by face, not by sight. And every hero you've got in Scripture had to narrow the gap and find God's way to make the decision good. Every hero then, every hero now. What decision are you in? And it is not at all what you expected. Maybe it's a decision where you said, I do. And no one who said, I do, till death do us part has not had to deal with this gap at some time or another or ongoing. And how do I make the decision good? And make the decision good and make the decision good because I said, till death do us part. Some of you might be in a job or a career or an academic course of study and you made the best decision you could and you felt like God was in it and then you have this gap. How do you narrow the gap? Maybe you've stepped out into some aspect of ministry and you thought it was all going to be and I could have told you it wasn't going to be because there's a whole lot of challenge to that. I don't know what your decision is, what you're in the midst of, but I want to encourage you to be a person of faith and I want to be honest with you. This, this building almost did my wife and I and almost did me in. We were toast when it was over with. But I've learned something, that God isn't super overwhelmed when I feel like I'm about toast. His greatest goal for me is not that Stan is happy and everything goes Stan's way. In fact, when my back's against the wall is when I find I have some of the most beautiful dependence and desperation for God. And when you think about it, if you really believe the theology of Scripture, as I do, we live on a fallen planet. And the longer I live, the more fallen I see it to be. You should be shocked when things go right. I had a good day today. I didn't have any problems. It went the way it was supposed to. But instead, we run into opposition. We have this and we experience this. And oh, God, where are you? And oh, we panic. No, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Israel left Egypt. They had no idea what they were going to experience and what God wanted to do was show them how to close the gap and follow me and keep your eyes on me and stay faithful and I'll be faithful to you. And God has the same lesson for you. No, keep your eyes on me, follow me, stay faithful and I'll be faithful to you. So I want to close this message just with a word of prayer. I'm asking you to bow your heads with me because I can see many of you are already jumping between the message and the Bible and the experience of 1990 and your own life and what you're going through right now. And I'll ask you, if you're here today, maybe I, maybe I kind of rocked you at the beginning saying you've got to choose who you're going to serve and you haven't decided about that you have decided, you must consciously decide to follow Jesus. Maybe you need to make that decision today. Or maybe you're here and you're a believer, but you have a big decision ahead of you, and this has just sobered you up even more, and you want to panic and run and not make the decision. No, God's calling you to make it, so you ask for wisdom and He'll give you the guidance. And many of you, I can read, are, are already in this gap. And your prayer is, God, how do I narrow that? On rare occasions, it's time for a reboot. But more often than not, he wants to lead you forward and show you how. If you're any of those, yeah, the shoe fits. I want to pray for you. Would you just raise your hand and say, yeah, I need prayer. All across this place. Yeah. Lots of hands. It's part of the essence of life. So, Lord, you see our hands. More than that, you see what what the condition is, the circumstance in our lives that has called us. We made a decision, and what we expected and what we're experiencing is nowhere near the same. We need your help, God, to, to narrow that gap. We need your help to be faithful to the decision you've called us to and to see it to its proper end. Lord, some who raise their hand need to decide to follow Jesus, and today is their day of surrender. Lord, don't let them leave here without accomplishing that, without about saying yes to that. So Lord, we, we declare we trust you. And those of you who raise your hand, would you just whisper to God the circumstance that you find yourself in? Lord, I I need you to help me with. I've made a decision. Show me how to make the decision good. Ask him. Or I need to make a decision. Give me your wisdom. Ask him. He said he'd give you that. And Lord, hear the cry of our hearts. And I'm so thankful, Lord. You don't promise to give us a comfortable journey, but you promise to be with us. Lord, sometimes you let walls blow down. Sometimes you let us try to build on bad dirt, sometimes you let things go bankrupt. And what you call us to is not to run in fear or to blame you or to wonder where you are, but you call us to lean more heavily into you, depend upon you, and keep our eyes on you. And I pray that that would be the case for each person, not only those who raise their hand, but for all of us who call CLC our church home. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Guide us in our decisions, big and small, and give us a resolute decision to follow you and to unite together for your will. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you... Raise your hand. I want to accept Christ today. When you leave, stop by the VIP room and tell them, I, I need to accept Jesus, and they'll help you with that. If you h- need prayer today in one area or another, find a person with a, a lighted lanyard. They're your section leader. They'll be happy to, to pray with you or to give you any information you need. Beyond that, if you're new, stop by the VIP room. We'd like to meet you and share a gift, and hopefully you'll be with us Wednesday night at 7 o'clock for our deeper dive in the West auditorium. God bless you. Have a great day.